Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Our next guest has had an amazing career in music working for companies including The Orchard, EMI Music, Shrine America, and Fremantle Media, among others. He is now the VP of Music Strategies and Licensing for Crown Media Family Networks, including Hallmark Channel, Hallmark Movies and Mysteries, and Hallmark Drama. He's in charge of overseeing music supervision and composition and score for more than 100 films per year, and I'm incredibly excited to welcome him on the show. And the executive is Daryl Berg. Hello. Hey, guys. Hey, or hey, everyone out there in podcast land. Is that a thing? Well, we used to say like radio yeah. land and TV land. Now we say, I just hi, say everybody in, in the ether. They're just living up there. And the ephemeral people, I guess. Hey. Anyway, hello. Uh, so, Daryl, I want to ask, I mean, you've had quite an extensive career. Uh, did you want to be a musician like, growing up as a kid? Like, I know. I wanted to play first base for the New York Yankees, um, which is true. I'm from New York originally. Uh, and um, I always loved music, though. Music was kind of the thing that rescued me, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, from a uh, your typical or atypical teenage angst. It was always a thing that like, felt good for me. It felt comfortable with me. I was good at it. But the funny thing is, I never wanted to be a musician. I, I play, and I never like had fantasies of like being, you know, I've performed three times on stage in my life. And I just was, you know, I don't have the the patience. I'm more of a dilettante than a, than a, someone who can focus on stuff. So, um, and I guess if you're working in music supervision, being a dilettante is good because you just need to know enough about everything to dig deeper when you need to. Um, and yeah, so, but you know, I played in a couple bands and, and, but, but I was, I was that kid under the covers, memorizing lyrics and, and crying over sad songs and jumping around over, you know, aggressive songs and, and whatever, what have you. And I, but I never really wanted to be a musician. Gotcha. Was there any um, moment that you decided that you wanted to like work in music? Well, in 10th grade. So originally I, I always wanted to be a lawyer since I was really young. I wanted to be a lawyer. I don't understand what that means. I think it just seemed like a cool career or a successful career. And uh, I remember I was like in 10th grade and I did a, a report on Franken on the poster that came with the Dead Kennedys Frankenchrist, which was an HR Geiger thing that got arrested for obscenity. And I started doing research into like First Amendment law, and I realized that like bands have lawyers and stuff. Sorry, my daughter just walked in. So bands have lawyers, and and that must mean something. And therefore, why, why don't I combine music and and law and see where that gets me? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like the. Uh the rock scene and, and music lawyers tend to have a lot of uh, stories. Well, but they do or they don't. They do. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I never, I never actually ended up being a music lawyer, although I did and I didn't, which we can go through that in a little bit. But, um, you know, every you night, know, look, from whether it's two live crew or, or stuff like that to copyright infringement to just simply doing deals, you know, 
copyright is, is a legal medium and, and that's really what the basis of music is. So at least on the, on the most, on a more pragmatic sense, I suppose. Gotcha. Yeah. So after curiosity, so you went to law school and you have a law degree. Do you feel like for most of your, or like do most of the jobs that you've done require like proper schooling or do you think it's such a unique field that. Um, see, it's funny. I'm glad I went to law school because I think it teaches you a way to think and a way to be and, and all that. But I do think that the best way to learn anything is from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so apprenticeship is really the best way to go. Now, that being said, it's, it's taught, sort of taught me how to learn and taught me how to be and taught me how to think. So I think it was useful in that sense. But, you know, it's like people who go to get a music education, unless you're going to be a composer or something like that, like, does it really help you get that first job out of school? I, I don't know. You know? Right. I guess it, it, it depends on the person. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So go on, you were saying, so yeah, that's kind of how music affects me and, 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 and sorry, uh, my degree affects what I do. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, it does give me a little bit of gravitas and helps me with licensing and stuff like that as well, but not anything that any you know normal person couldn't learn. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, so I want to ask about your work at Fremantle and uh, you worked on American Idol and America's Got Talent, among others. Um, not, I worked sort of overseeing some of the licensed music that we created for it. But I wasn't necessarily in the weeds hanging out with, you know, Katy Perry or uh, Ryan Seacrest. Right. What we did was, one of the things, and it's a lesson for composers, is they never owned any. So a lot of production companies own their music, right? And when you own your music, you make a lot of money. And when you have a format like American Idol or Got Talent that has is aired in a million different countries, there's a lot of back end there, both for the writer and whatever. But that show never got right back end for the company. So they probably lost out on $10, $15 million in back end. Wow. So yeah, so, and that's part of what I do. It's not just the creative. I actually manage publishing assets for companies. And, and you know, my, my uncle, may he rest in peace, told me once, he goes, you know, it's great to do the creative, but if you can actually help the bottom line, you'll make yourself more useful. And that, never, that always stayed with me. So what I do is probably 60% creative and 40% business organizational. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So were you in charge of uh, licensing songs for the show as well? No, that was that was... That, that project was such a beast. That was a third party person because there's just literally no way I could do it. In the same way as, you know, I do a hundred some odd movies at, 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 at a Hallmark. So I probably supervise five or 10 of those myself a year and oversee all the others. But in every other movie, I'm watching every scene of every movie. And 90% of the time, if there's like a big song that we need, I'll jump in and say, hey, what about this? And kind of be part of the committee. Um, but yeah, I unlike those other jobs, the job I'm doing now, I literally have either work with, work with executives with, work with, with producers with on every single note you hear in every movie, wow. which is nuts. Yeah. I mean, to do yeah. a hun- over a hundred movies sometimes a year, it's just, uh, it's insane. I'm a busy man. <laughs> yeah. And on that, I mean, so I think Hallmark is interesting because unlike some other networks, um, as a composer, I feel like Hallmark does have a sound to it. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Can you talk about like if that's important to like maintain or is it something you try to like constantly push a little further? So one of the reasons why they brought me in there was there was this Hallmark sound that unintentionally became a Hallmark sound that they didn't really like. Mm. And it was sort of this wall-to-wall music everywhere. Like everything had a note. And that started out with this other producer who I won't name, but basically he understood the power of performance royalty. So he put as much music in there as possible to get as much PRO money as possible. So as a result, they used to like, you know, before they made their own movies, they used to license a lot of his stuff and it became the sound. I've had to actually go in and re-educate composers on, no, we want this to be like a traditional movie. 
Score like a traditional movie. When somebody is opening an envelope to look at a letter, they don't need music. When somebody is ordering a pizza, they don't need music. If somebody is falling in love, yeah, we need music. Somebody's at a restaurant, there's background music. But you know, when somebody's like walking up to a dog and petting it, we don't need like, and that's really been part of the re-education of it. So, you know, and some of the composers have done a great job evolving and some haven't. And we've brought in a lot of new composers who I think are really great. Um, and so, you know, we go from there. We're trying to diversify, bring in more female composers just to make things, you know, we're telling stories for a big audience, bulk of our audience is women. So why wouldn't we have women telling, helping to tell those stories? And that was really important to me as well. Mm-hmm. Was that a thing that you uh, noticed was just immediately not apparent there? When yeah, you before I got there, I don't think they'd had a, and look, I'm not trying to be the savior. I'm a straight white Jewish guy from New York. I am the problem. I'm, you know, there's, 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 I'm very lucky to have the career I've had and have the advantages I've had. And I get that. But at the same token, like there is a different perspective depending on what you, what perspective you come from. And so we went from having zero female composers to six right now, I think that we have. And if you do one movie for us, you'll probably end up doing five. Right. So, you know, of the 103 movies, we probably use 20 to 25 different composers. So each of them do probably four or five a year, depending on the composer, depending on the budget, depending on where they live, because there's some Canadian tax credit issues that, that we have to consider as well. Yeah. Actually, can you talk to, or can you educate our listeners about that? The Canadian tax credit issue? Yeah, as it pertains to composers getting hired. Yeah. So, you know, if I've only hired you once or twice, part of it is not necessarily because I don't like your work. And part of it is because when we make a movie in British Columbia, they have sort of Canadian or British Columbia requirements that a certain percentage of the film spend has to be on BC or, or you know, or, or Canadian composers. And, and music usually falls under that. So, and even to some degree, sometimes licensed music falls under that, which is really frustrating mm-hmm. that you have to only use Canadian licensed music. That doesn't happen that often, but it really depends on, you know, things that are above my pay grade or to the left of my pay grade as far as the, um, as far as, you know, how much music we, money we use and how much, or how much, who we can hire and who we can't hire. You know, I tend to, for the movies that we own, I can kind of hire whoever I want. But if it's a movie we license, those licensed producers really rely on those tax credits to help them get the movies made. And almost always, if it's a Vancouver movie, got to use a Vancouver composer. If it's a Toronto movie, got to use an Ontario composer, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just to, to piggyback off a previous point about how you work, where like if a composer gets hired, they typically get hired for five films. Uh, is that a comfort thing? Is that just because I assume those directors aren't making the same five movies too? Right. Um, no, I think for me, it's, I know somebody who, I, look, I trust somebody, right? It's why does Scorsese work with Leonardo DiCaprio? He mm-hmm. trusts him and he likes his work. I'm not equating myself to Scorsese, nor am I equating any of my composers to that, to DiCaprio. But, you know, there's a level of comfort. There's somebody I know that I can trust. Um, I think the biggest thing a composer can do is uh, translate. So if I say, make this more tender, you know what I mean? If I say, make this, you know what I mean? If I say, you know... And look, if you're a composer, you should be able to do everything. I don't care if it's Christmas music or grindcore. You should be able to read the same way as if you're a good composer. You don't have to know how to play every kind of music. You know how to have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. As a music supervisor, it's not about my taste in music. It's about my ability to know about music. And so I need a composer who kind of can share that with me, which is their ability to make the things that I'm translating into words, into action. And that's really where I think a a best composer really is is somebody who can really do that, who can take 
words into action and, and be sort of that translator, so to speak. You know, I don't care if you can play as fast as Steve, Steve Vai and compose as intricately as Mozart. I care whether you can say, if I say make this a little less tender and a little more bemused, that you can translate that into what I'm hearing in my head. Right. And yeah, so do you find that that also translates in the way you work with uh, hiring supervisors for films? Um, a lot of times our supervisors come with film because, again, we, they have to be a Canadian spend. Other times it's just people I work well with, people I trust. Um, I don't hire that many. I hire a few a year. Most of them it's like, you know, I, we have a universe of people we pick from and it's like, oh, it's Natasha's turn for this one. Great. It's Valerie's turn for this one. Great. That is a little bit different than, say, uh, you know, traditionally like, you know, Vince Gilligan always using Thomas Golovich or something like that. Because again, I'm the network. I'm not the, I'm the, I'm the network and the studio. So it's a little bit of a different animal. Yeah. It's a pretty unique place to be in too. There aren't too many people. Oh, no, doing right. it. I, 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 it's, it's, you know, look, I have class posters on my wall, as you can see. And, you know, you never think that a guy with my musical taste would, would gravitate towards this, but a, I, I love what I do. I have the freedom to do what I want within degrees and they trust me, which is really important. And um, they let me be kind of creative. And and I really do love what I do. And I love my job. And I'm very blessed. And I never thought I would, but it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are uh, rock bands your favorite? Or, or was that your favorite genre growing up? I mean, I grew up a punk rock indie rock kid. Uh, you know, a little bit of hip hop because I grew up on Long Island during the golden age, you know, with, with De La and Tribe and, and, and Public Enemy and stuff like that. And but, you know, my roots are definitely sort of American indie rock, American punk rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you um, been able to to work on any shows or, or projects that allowed you to explore your favorite, actually personal taste in music? You no, know, like, like I said, my taste doesn't matter what I do. My knowledge does. But, you know, I mean, we've had some interesting stuff in Hallmark, believe it or not. Um, but, the, you know, the best thing I ever did was when I was at, at Fuel, which is the Fox Network I was at we got to book live bands and then there I got to book, you know, Bob Mould, who's a personal hero of mine and Dinosaur Jr. who I'm a huge fan of. And the first person to put Edward Sharp on TV, Foster the People, Mumford and Sons, Calvin Harris, jeez, uh, so many. And, and so I have been able to you know, not necessarily supervise, but run a show because I've always always had this executive side as well. And so I've worked, you know, I put so many bands that I love on television that I, you know, 700 bands over five years on one TV show I was working on. So I, you know, it was like having a, live band in my backyard every week or five times a week so nothing's ever going to top that as far as pure musicality but i'm somebody who if i'm passionate about something it's not necessarily just about the sounds coming out but it's how the sounds are being made and how they're telling the story so i can pretty much find joy in in, in a lot of different styles it doesn't just have to be hey play me a three and a half minute punk song with a slight guitar solo and singing about angst and i'm happy you know it's a little bit different than that yeah. Well, you mentioned the sounds being made. So do you uh, spend a lot of time looking into like how music's created? Um, no, because I've always been the ultimate, because I'm a terrible musician, which means I play guitar well enough to impress somebody who's never seen anybody play guitar before. I, I care more about how it, the end result, like I grew up as a radio guy, right? I was a kid who listened to the radio and, and granted my tech, my taste got more eclectic and more left of center, but there was always, I always kind of went back to the radio when I was in my car, always. Very rarely do I ever really listen to CDs and stuff in my car. It's really weird. And even to this day, I, you know, I listen to like full albums at home and the car is like switch around and all that. But I can't just, have, you know, there are certain sounds that I don't like. You know, people in my office will joke how much I hate the sound of the bassoon because it sounds really dumb, but a lot of composers use bassoons. 
I also don't really like really high tone strings. Hmm. Um, I find them a little saccharine, but I love the cello if it's used properly. But at the end of the day, I don't really care as much how you're making it as long as you're making it. Like my experience with, with recording equipment has been the more I play with recording equipment, the less interesting the sounds I make are. Because you get lost in the wormhole of like, ooh, here's a, a echo with a, a doom pedal with a fuzz. And how cool is that? And by the time you figured out the sound, you haven't played a note. You're just hitting the E button just to hear what it freaking sounds like or the E chord button. Yeah, that, that's the, uh, the uh, E chord just to hear what it sounds like. And you're like, I just spent 20 minutes, you know, 20 minutes figuring out the sound. And now what am I going to play? And then you got to go. And this is not who I am. I'm much more about the final product. Well, well we do that, too, just so you know. <laughs> Oh, composers, no, composers have, but here's the difference. You have to do that to find out the sound. That's your job. Mm. Because you're working in sonic textures, whereas all I ever wanted to do was write a great three and a half minute pop song. Right. So it's a little bit of a different, it's a little bit of a different animal. But I, you know, I mean, not everything I listen to is that now, obviously. I listen to, listens, wow. Oh my God. I listen to, you know, plenty of like, you know, Japanese noise metal and and indie folk rock and, and modern country and, and i'm a little bit all over the place these days so gotcha what's well, cool you keep your your tastes pretty uh pretty open uh i have to i mean but but that's also part of the job like there are things that i um there are things that i gravitate more towards and it's funny the more that i have to listen to music i don't know the more i come home and i put on stuff like this you know the replacements middle records or whatever and just because um it feels comfortable and there's only so much searching we can all do for sure. You know, at some point, you know, it's like why we like Mac and cheese. Sure. I could have a different new funky restaurant every week, but sometimes you just need a little comfort just to like remind yourself why something is good in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a funny thing. I think the older I get, it's more gravitate towards what I listened to when I was 13. No, it's, it's so funny. There are bands that I could not stand in high school. Um, and not even not could understand. I just wasn't my thing because either culturally it didn't feel right to me, or or I you know it wasn't whatever it was. And like the older I get, the more I find myself listening to classic rock. And I've never I've been a classic rock kid since I was fourteen years old before I discovered punk rock, right? So you know I, I find myself listening to like a Led Zeppelin song, and I was never a Zeppelin guy. I'm going, all right, this is good. You know, I'll, I'll listen to this or like a Depeche Mode song that I hated Depeche Mode when I was 15. But I'm like, all right, this is pretty good. You know, it, it's so it's so but I, I may have hated it, but I still know the song. Right. And so it's so weird. The things that I find myself listening to, like I now have discovered a deep love for Bob Seger. Like, that's just bizarre to me if you knew me growing up, you know, but there's a comfort to that stuff. You know, it's, 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 it's not pablum in the same, it's, it's just, it's, it's comforting. You know, it's the roots of what, of whatever happened. Yeah. Then of course, Bob Seger ended up doing a cover of a Steve Earle song. So I justified myself. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I had that with, um, with Clapton recently where I've been doing a deep dive again and never really liked his music before. <laughs> but there's a comfort to it. Yeah. So yeah, has a couple of last questions here, but what sure. is a uh, Hallmark seems pretty generally inviting of like newer faces, younger composers, that kind of thing. Uh, but whether it's Hallmark or any other network or whatever, what would be your advice to composers who are trying to break in from maybe who've worked on like big movies doing additional music to then like landing just a solo composer credit on a film or TV oh, show? I'm, I'm not a bad place to do that. If you can build a reel of your, of your, that makes sense. So there's that. And 
you know, find a, find a guy who's just out of grad school or film school and work with him because, you know, that could end up being P.T. Anderson. Uh, be nice to everyone because that's how you could end up being Sid from This Is Us, who is uh, Dan Fogelman's best friend from, from Penn, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You know, try to grow with somebody. That's the, that's the key, right? So, so you're not going to make $20,000 in your first movie. Maybe you make a few bucks, maybe you don't, but you get the opportunity to get the experience. And it sucks because LA is a really expensive place to eat and live. But if you still have some performance royalties from the other stuff you've worked on coming in, you should be okay. But, but, and also, especially if you're starting out, don't say no to anything. Unless it's like just a horribly immoral movie or something like that, say yes to everything. Be vocationally slutty. <laughs> For sure. Um, and you mentioned LA though. So it is very important to you that the composers are based in LA. No. Um, the only reason why I think LA is interesting and why, and, and now we're going to start seeing less and less of it, but LA is the greatest middle music, uh, the greatest middle creative middle class in the world to still a line from Woody Allen's movie, even though I shouldn't be quoting Woody Allen. Um, and what that means is basically, you'll cut your teeth here. You'll meet the right people here. You'll, you'll work with the right people. And you just generally are better. When you're here in LA, there's so much opportunity around you that it's sort of like iron sharpens iron. You know, you're going to work with people who are going to make you better. And I think that goes a long way. I'm not saying they have to be in LA, but I found that, you know, of all the places in the world that I've worked with people who are from, I feel like the people who are from anywhere move to LA to get better and to be better and to have more opportunity. Hmm. So you have more to choose from. And right. you have to be better to rise to the top. Yeah. And there's a the whole community aspect and you can see what other people yeah. are up to. Absolutely. It's not competition, but it is something that will drive you. It's co-opetition. We're all working together towards success. It's co-opetition. I love that. I didn't make it up. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for it, but I, I'm not going to. Fair enough. Cool. Well, we're just going to go on to the last segment for this uh, episode. It's called Top oh. 5. Daryl's Top 5. Okay. Music supervisors, song placements, uh, composers, uh, music execs. Just list five of your faves. Of each or just of five? I have to pick five a top, just I have pick, to pick a category. one of each or one or a couple right. of whatever. <laughs> I think on music supervision, I mean, I love Thomas, but I think Robin Erdang has done a miracle worker job on Maisel. Mm. Um, I think what she has done to keep that relevant and interesting and not seem cheesy and obvious is, ama- is, is really remarkable. And she's really done her research. I think she's done an incredible job. Um, music executives. Who do I like in you besides myself? Um, I mean, I love John Katosa. He's a dear friend and he's one of the all-time greats, just nicest person in this business. Uh, placement. Probably my favorite placement of all time is probably the beginning of Basquiat, Public Image, which is just, if you haven't seen it, just freaking explodes off the screen. Um, what, are the, what are the top fives can I, can I come up with? A uh, composer, or you can pick another of any of them. <laughs> My favorite composer that I work with is probably Michael Hurwitz. Although my apologies to Alec Puro and Genevieve and anyway, and Natalie and everyone else who's listening to this, but Michael's just fantastic. Another Canadian who moved to LA. Um, as far as big film composers, I mean, you know, look, Atticus Ross is pretty, pretty great. Um, who else do I love? You know, it's funny. I listened to ET the other day. Or I watched ET with my daughter the other day. And I was like, God, this music, and John Williams obviously is a genius, but I was like, God, this music is so over the top. You know, that I don't think that movie, I don't think that music gets made today. I really don't. 
it's just it would be different. It would just be a little bit more droney, a little bit less sixty-four piece orchestra, and a little simpler. And and I'm sure he's adapted. I mean, the guy's a genius. But I was just listening. I'm like, God, for me, it, it, and as somebody who fights mute movies that can be over the top sometimes with the love and the saccharine, I just was listening. I'm going, wow, this is just this is a lot for like a small family drama about a, a visitor from out of town. It's funny you mentioned that it's over the top, but it's not cheesy. No, it's not cheesy. I just, I literally was closing my eyes and listening to it and not looking at what the action. And I'm just like, this is so big. I mean, I know that's what, that's the whole point, but I also feel like they don't make them like that. It, 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 yeah. I think we're living in a, a post irony world where you can't do that sincerely anymore, yeah. which is probably sad. Yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing where I think like the Hans Zimmerish sound, which is starting to go out of phase too, but cause that was big for a moment, but right. Still is. it, it didn't have as much of like the melodic elements or those like heartstring moments. It's kind of just like, yeah, it's a lot of like the drums are very tribal and, and, and yeah, for sure. But, and now then, you know, everybody went to Atticus Ross after the social network, everything was really droney and simple. Oh yeah. But you're also talking to somebody who thinks the way you improve most movies is t- take out about 25% of the music. So I, I love when there's beautiful silence because it makes the music that much better. Right, yeah. You know, like if, you're, if you're really thirsty, that glass of water is fantastic. Oh, yeah. It just makes it taste that much better. And that's the way I like, you know, I, I don't, can't necessarily do that all the time on my job, but I tend to err on the side of dryness sometimes. But that's just me. Yeah, I mean, wall-to-wall music is drowning. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I call it memes. <laughs> when wall to wall is just slathered on like mayonnaise it's great you know, too. a little bit of mayonnaise is good but too much mayonnaise is like i can't get through this yeah so <laughs> for sure cool well, you killed it here with the top five uh so daryl just want to say thank you so much for being on it was a pleasure having my you pleasure. i'm sorry about the introduction or the interruption from my daughter but this is you know to paraphrase uh david byrne it's life during wartime so we got to do the best we can thanks for listening to this episode of composer talk If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.